Hello! Welcome to Altered Mobility, where we talk about publicly available transportation, public spaces, the ways we get around, and what surrounds us in the public sphere. I am your host, Cheryl Gross-Glazer, and today we have a fun episode. We look at both the 1961 and the 2021 versions of the movies West Side story and we look at public spaces through that lens a little bit of the subway but not too much mostly public spaces and i have my coffee today mm-hmm. it is a combination of sumatra and guatemala from my favorite coffee maker zeke's I have to say, I do like some others, but they, they really are my favorite. Okay, so why don't I pour a little more coffee? All right, and let's get started. Okay, so we have both the original and the remake of West Side Story are just wonderful movies. Both versions are classic, see them on a full big screen, you know, movie house screen, like uh, American Film Institute or the Uptown in D.C. or Radio City Music Hall in New York City or wherever you are. I don't know um, any big screens in the Midwest or the West Coast, but if you have that available, you can go somewhere like that to see one of these versions or both do it. It's it's totally worth it. These are really works of art. Um, it's a great story, West Side Story, wonderful songs, great dance numbers in both, in both movies. Um, this story evokes a time and place in New York when it's on the precipice of going downhill with crime, with dirt. Um, only the poor, the stalwarts, you know, who love the city are left when everyone else, you know, has flown or is fleeing to the suburbs. And I have to say my family was one of those stalwarts and I grew up loving the city and enjoying the libraries and the shows, the museums, playgrounds. But I did dream of life in suburbia because it was so idealized. Um, in in movies and in television at the time you know when that first movie that first 1961 movie comes out version of west side story it's um it's really i wouldn't say it's necessarily the peak but it's it's during a peak phase of that lust for suburbia in the united states mm just taking a sip okay so west side story takes the plot of romeo and juliet of two warring houses two groups who have labeled each other and don't acknowledge the humanity in the other you know the, um there's full all-out hatred and it takes the story to a neighborhood undergoing radical change in mid-20th century manhattan above columbus circle on the west side but instead of you romeo and juliet's young uh, aristocratic star-crossed couple both wealthy um, in West Side Story we have Tony and Maria and they're both poor they're both very sweet and they're both have a love that that crosses this harsh line of hatred a true a true love you know and a and, uh, love that's immediate because the whole movie takes place over the course of I don't know it's maybe 36 or 48 hours um, but before we talk about West Side Story, either movie version or generally about both in any detail, we're going to go to our moment in equity, which is related to these films. So West Side Story is a film mostly uh, made mostly by Jews <laughs> about Puerto Rican newcomers. Um, to a neighborhood uh, where we have already there these Irish and Italian young people, but they've been left behind by those who are uh, fleeing their middle-class counterparts who have flown um, these crowded city neighborhoods for the suburbs, you know, post-World War II life. They've either gone to Queens or Long Island or maybe Westchester if they have a little more money, Connecticut, New Jersey, right? But they've fled the city already. And we have these, um, I think what the movie thinks of as punks uh, left. 
And while I've heard some, including Lin-Manuel Miranda, say that, that he wants to see entertainment by and about Latinos instead of seeing stories that have writ been written by others. And that is a totally valid viewpoint. And bring it on. You know, bring those stories, those shows, those movies on. That's great. But I will just say, you know, uh, to defend West Side Story, I'll just say that in a, a diverse world of New York City neighborhoods where everybody um, is in a place where no one is the majority and everyone is both an observer of other people's customs and practices and also an insider in one's own eth ethnic or racial group or neighborhood um, that you're never just living in this closed world. You're always in a world where you see what other people are doing, um, both good and bad, and um, in ways that seem foreign and familiar. So I think that this story is really reflects New York City so much in that way. Uh, the neighborhood, um, and as we get you know deeper into equity, that's really more of a comment on my side, but. <laughs> Uh, but the, the neighborhood that is physically uh, being destroyed in West Side Story, um, and you see part of this neighborhood in the 1961 version, the new buildings being constructed in their, their stead are referenced in the song America and elsewhere in the movies. Um, they demonstrate how perspective in terms of equity is everything. The characters in the movie are poor, but the people who moved into those apartment buildings, at least in the mid-60s when they were built, uh, were far from wealthy. Lincoln Towers, which is situated just uh, north of Lincoln Center, was originally a rent-controlled community with green spaces and playgrounds for middle-class res uh, residents. Many of these tenants were city workers and teachers. It was only in the 1980s that this development went co-op, uh, which meant that the residents would own their apartments. And this is a time when many New York City buildings went from being rentals to co-op. And in, at least in that time period, uh, the, the existing tenants were able to purchase their apartments for way below market rates. Um, so this was a great wealth booster for those middle-class families. Those apartments now sell for a pretty penny, although I would say that Lincoln Towers, the, the going rate for those apartments is still well below the cost of apartments in pre-war buildings or those even further up in the Upper West Side. Um, Lincoln Towers is really the beginning of the Upper West Side. Um, so I would guess that many of the original or early tenants are still living in Lincoln Towers. There's a lot of elderly residents there, but more and more over time, I have to say, and I go there a lot, um, I've seen younger families, a lot of younger families and families where the kids have grown up there. Um, if you look closely between 13 and 14 minutes into the first movie version, there's actually a shot of the guys um, in the movie on top of the rubble from these demolished buildings and we can see the new Lincoln Towers looking very kind of glossy and un as yet unoccupied in the background. Another thing about Lincoln Towers that other New York City apartments developments also used in their land use to designs was of having open spaces with benches, little parks, greenery. Um, these are not buildings that were just plopped on the street. Plus, with Lincoln Center and Broadway as its neighbors, um, there's a lot of good public spaces in this neighborhood that makes uh, Lincoln Towers a very livable neighborhood, livable place to live. Um, however, I will say, in terms of equity with the shift from rentals to co-op, Lincoln Towers became an enclave, not for the totally, you know, very wealthy, but certainly for those higher up on the income scale than what the development was originally planned for. Even though these, these are very modest apartments, I will say, they are not huge, they, they are not um, the kind of wealthy pre-war apartments you'll see in many movies. Uh, Lincoln Towers represents a complicated picture in terms of equity because it was originally designed um, 
with equity in mind and with the middle class in mind. It gave transit and pedestrian-oriented housing to middle-class families, but later when it goes co-op in the 80s, those lucky families could later sell those apartments for lots of money, enlarging their wealth. But at the same time, cutting off the opportunity of affordable housing for those who happened to be in the same shoes as they were, but just a generation or two later. And one more point about equity that I do want to mention is that the parts of the Puerto Rican characters in the original version, the 1961 version of West Side Story, they were not generally played by Puerto Ricans or by Central Americans. Um, except for Rita Moreno. She is Puerto Rican, and she does play Anita, the second female lead in the original. She recently did a documentary within the last few years about her life, and she talks about how before this movie she was always cast in sort of, and I'll put this in air quotes, the pretty exotic girl roles. Uh, for instance, if you look at the movie King and I, which stars uh, Yul Brenner and Deborah Carr, uh, Rita Moreno plays a Thai young woman who is, she's promised to the king, but she loves another. Um, and she also talks in that documentary uh, quite a bit about the casual and accepted at the time sexual harassment, even sexual assault of young actresses. And that's uh, really interesting to hear um, straight from someone who experienced it. It's also a neat documentary otherwise. Um, so as we move out of our moment of equity to talking about the movies, I will say one cautionary note to, as we begin. I have a real love for West Side Story, and I played Anita, I did, in the PS209, that's elementary school, not high school, so you can imagine. How, how bad it probably was. Uh, the PS209 version of the musical, and to the horror of every family member uh, who hates, they hate to hear me sing, I will sing, I will dance, and I will act uh, my heart out when I hear, you know, those West Side Story numbers, because I, I revert to... Uh, I revert to my role as Anita there. I lost out the role of a Maria to, to my friend Joanne Pisani. Wherever you are, Joanne, you were great, and your mom did such a beautiful job on your hair. You looked so beautiful. Anyway, okay, in terms of giving a sense of place with either version of West Side Story, we have City in some ways as men menacing and, and gritty, as not always a welcoming place. You know, if we compare, you know, to the movies we've done already, Roman Holiday or Ferris Bueller's Day Off, where we see cities as kind of a gleaming playground with art and possibility. Um, in West Side Story, we have a city uh, neighborhood that's not meant for the affluent. It's not It's not where the tourists come, although obviously they do come today because uh, Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts, the Juilliard School of Music, you know, are located where, where West Side Story takes place. Um, but this is what grew up around there. It was developed, you know, uh, to replace this neighborhood. It replaced a poor neighborhood with a middle-class neighborhood, with a performing performing arts venues, um, and so it becomes a completely different place. So where the first two, where the two versions of West Side Story depart from each other, though, um, there's a big difference in terms of tone, and I would say that difference is that in the the first version, that 1961 version sees only hopelessness and tragedy as this uh, neighborhood of San Juan Hill is cleared. Whereas the second version, which came out um, in the last few years, in 2021, views the neighborhood and the ethnic communities with nostalgia as brimming with life and color, vitality, music. In the original, there's a sense of agreement with the urban renewal movement in some ways, of getting rid of the slums, um, but not knowing what's going to happen to these young people. You know, it, it 
does raise that very big question, whereas the remake has much more of an affection for the built environment of the neighborhood. Uh, I will say in both there's a connection with the people caught in the web of barely making it and feeling like the cards are stacked against them. Um, and, it, and it sees these kids, although being some ways treated differently because of their ethnicities, it also sees them as very much caught in the same bind. So we're going to look first, obviously, at the original, the 1961 version. And then we'll go to the 2021 version. In the original, we begin with a glorious aerial image of Lower Manhattan as it existed in 1961, uh, with boats and ships in the harbor. Then we have a view of clean modern highways, you know, as if that's to signal this is what the future of America is. And we go on a tour of densely building Manhattan, like an aerial view, but we're close down with older buildings and small parks and the grid of right angles that are the streets. Um, we even go past the pretty much still new United Nations, past Yankee Stadium and Columbia University. And what's odd is it's almost like we're seeing uh, a summertime five in the morning, you know? it's. Um, we don't see people around, we only see uh, moving vehicles, and not even crowded. And then we come to our playground with basketball courts, open spaces, even monkey bars, the ground covered in concrete. We come to the playground where we start um, getting to know who our characters are and what's going on. And before we meet those characters and how we meet them, which is so special in these movies, I'm going to talk about those playgrounds. Uh, the concrete of those New York City neighborhood playgrounds uh, left as, largely as open spaces, sometimes with play equipment such as swings and slide, uh, but oftentimes not. Or sometimes they've already, that, that equipment has already been uh, removed as it was in my neighborhood by 1961. Uh, the idea of the playground grew out of the play movement during a time when children were often working, still working at dangerous jobs, a movement that sought to protect children from playing amidst the dangers of the streets. So this movement goes back to the 1880s and it, and it continues through decades of huge waves of poor immigrants landing on American shores. Uh, many of these in immigrants uh, arrived and they settled in neighborhoods that were at the time the most densely populated on earth, uh, especially in New York City, although there were other cities that uh, had neighborhoods with them. In 1884, tenement, uh, uh, committee, excuse me, a committee of tenement house was formed to study this problem, to address the socialization needs of kids who were playing on the streets and behind buildings unsupervised. Uh, these were children from poor families. Oftentimes they had many, many siblings. Often they had uh, parents who didn't speak English or who were only learning English, who were working long hours. Um, and these kids were living in terribly cramped conditions. So we have tons of children. Where are they going to play? How are they going to avoid crime? How are they going to avoid uh, the dangerous work that oftentimes their cohorts are playing or that they are, uh, I mean, working at or the dangerous work even that they're working at? And the, the overarching question of how can these children being be assimilated into becoming productive American citizens. And I will quote from a blog post of the New York Public Library entitled Play Strike, um, exploring New York City playgrounds through historical newspapers. And this blog post, which came out in 2014, says, One 1890 New York Times article claims that city playgrounds will lessen the need for hospitals and charity asylums, as they would, in theory, provide children with a chance to work out their own salvation, physically as well as morally and mentally. So reformers, often uh, wealthy women or professional social workers or women whose work would become known as social worker, 
social work, uh, who were involved with settlement houses. These reformers, known as playground activists, kept pushing for outdoor sand gardens, slides, and organized activities. Uh, the building of a few experimental playgrounds led to advocacy for the Small Parks Act, which passed the New York uh, State Legislature in 1887, and the first municipal can I say this actually? <laughs> I never, not five times fast. Let's see if I can say it one time. The first municipally built playground in the United States was Seward Park, which opened in 1903 on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, so a neighborhood of very poor children. It's also where my father grew up and where my grandfather worked really for his whole uh, adult life uh, until he retired. 20,000 children showed up for the opening of the playground. There were too many children in the street. It was so crowded and packed that the kids got up on fire escapes and on roofs to witness the big event. Within 10 years of the opening of this playground, there were more than 25 playgrounds in Manhattan and Brooklyn, where, by the way, the movement had been going on just as long. A Washington Post article in 1905 that discussed New York City playgrounds talked about play equipment for sports teams and official teams formed at many playgrounds. After the initial rush in New York City to build playgrounds, this movement went national. The play, the playground, I can't even say playground a few times fast. Okay, need a little more coffee. The Playground Association of America, formed in 1906, had Theodore Roosevelt as its first honorary president, and it touted such luminaries as the Settlement House doyen Joy, Joy, Jane Adams. I'm really not batting a thousand. <laughs> By 1910, the number of municipalities with playgrounds across the United States had basically gone... Um, from zero to, in 1910, 531. So think of all those cities, uh, crowded neighborhoods, right? That's a lot of playgrounds. After that, school systems saw playgrounds as a necessity, and although for several reasons, I cringe whenever I mention this name, Robert Moses, as the supreme leader, road builder, and systemic racist, I could go on, though his title was Parks Commissioner, he was responsible for the building of 700 playgrounds in New York City alone. Uh, he accomplished this feat between 1934 and 1960. Uh, many of those playgrounds, probably the vast majority, are still in use today, and they dot the city in the same way as its architecture, its many houses of worship, and its street design. But before we give Robert Moses too much credit, uh, we re must recognize that, unlike that original Seward Park uh, playground, the playgrounds that Robert Moses had built um, were located overwhelmingly outside of poor neighborhoods. Um, what the early decades of, of playgrounds um, did have, even in Moses' day, were, they often were staffed with trained specialists, um, people who would watch the kids and lead the kids in activities of different kinds. So that's um, a change, certainly, um, that I think is turning around now. There is, there is as I go on, I'll, I'll say this, there is um, a new play movement, so that is being recognized again, but really for the almost 60 years um, between that first movie version and now, those trains trained specialists and playgrounds have been gone. A new play movement is active today in New York and other cities, large and small, uh, for play streets or open streets days that close streets to traffic and where activities are led and play materials are available. Even some adult classes are, are hosted. Um, these are recognized as a low-cost strategy for creating space, if only temporarily, for children and families to enjoy. Although the, West, the neighborhood where West Side Story takes place is well-served with outdoor spaces for children, there are still neighborhoods in Brooklyn, um, in particular, with critical shortages of playground space. 
Uh, current ideas to serve these children include mid-block parks that would involve closing low-traffic streets to cars and protecting schoolyard play areas, uh, which in New York City are usually covered in concrete and have little or no play equipment. Um, some of them, like my childhood uh, elementary school's playground, um, they took more than half the space and made it into a parking lot, so maybe they can turn back some of those. And it's only a few blocks from a subway station and literally right on a few bus lines, so I'm just saying you don't really even need the parking there, but that's just personal opinion. Okay, let's finally go back to West Side Story. We've just had that um, music-filled kind of aerial tour, very quiet, no people. Um, back to West Side Story in the original version, the first characters we see are the Jets. They're snapping fingers. They're acting in a menacing way on the playground toward others. These young men are athletic and the danger they carry with them, almost as part of their souls, is expressed through ballet-like choreography. The Jets represent the losers, right? They're the losers among those ethnic groups uh, that still remain in the neighborhood. They're the ones with, the Jets are these kids with no prospects, and so they cling to each other. Uh, their gang is their family, it's their structure, and it's their measure of themselves. On to our introduction to the Sharks, that's the Puerto Rican uh, gr uh, group, the Puerto Rican gang. And they represent these news newcomers, they're being discriminated against, they lack wealth and privilege. They're also snapping their fingers, also dancing through the streets, and, and during this this time, this period in the movie when we have this dancing where we're looking at the jets and the sharks and sometimes jet sharks, jets, sharks, or even see them interacting, we see this tension between the two groups uh, as, as these young men pass each other by and this is all expressed in dance um, and it's all before we hear any conversation, anyone saying anything in the movie, so it's really brilliant. It, it it tells you exactly where you are and who these people are without anyone saying anything. It's, it's really beautiful. So this long introduction without dialogue reminds me of that extended ballet in American in Paris. Um, but here in West Side Story, unlike most musicals, Dance is not an expression of happiness or exuberance. It's an expression of male aggression and territorialism over streets and playgrounds. And it's for a full 15 minutes at the beginning of the movie. The dialogue only begins when the police arrive. Um, and these police officers obviously look down on both of these sets of young men. Although I'd have to say, especially the Puerto Ricans, um, but they're none too uh, they're none too friendly with or or um, they have a very bad attitude even toward the jets, you know, but they I think they feel like the jets should know better because they've already lived here. I think that is kind of the heart of the attitude, whereas the Puerto Ricans have just arrived, so they kind of consider them, well, what do they know anyway? Um, but it really reflects a New York where it was acceptable to have a lack of respect toward other groups, toward other people. Um, now, I could wax poetic about the songs and every plot twist and turn, but I'm not going to do that. We're really going to talk about the the movies um, more overall and, and the spaces. Um, so I'm going to assume that, that most of you out there are generally uh, familiar with Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, the basic plot. Um, if you're not familiar with West Side Story, the difference between Romeo, 
in Juliet and West Side Story is um, in Shakespeare's story, we have no real backstory with why the Montagues and the Capulets uh, hate each other. It's just they do. They're both leading families and it's kind of territorial. They're warring. That's it. Whereas in West Side Story, um, it's quite understandable to see these groups squaring off, each trying to claim their little itty-bitty piece of the American pie. Now, in West Side Story, our Romeo character is Tony, and he's no longer enamored of gang life, although he had been an active member of the Jets. In both movies, he's portrayed as hardworking, a sweet, a nice guy who is seeking a path to a better life, and a less violent life than the one he grew up with. In the 1961 West Side Story, we see alleys behind the buildings teeming with hanging laundry, and we have a love story um, that we kind of feel is coming, right? We get, we'll get a clue soon um, because we've already heard that there's going to be a dance that evening. And one can imagine that the writers, directors, producers, whoever saw the beauty as well as the bleakness in these 1950s turning to 1960s streets are, they are sympathetic toward this couple and, and toward the communities in which they've they've grown up and where they're living, their neighborhoods. So to put everything in a nutshell, we have this love at first sight meeting at the dance. Um, it takes place in a crowded space. There's lots of kids dancing at the dance, right? And like any space with lots of people, it's one where the privacy of glances can easily go unnoticed by others. So we have uh, Tony and Maria seeing each other and just like Romeo and Juliet, this is star-crossed, across an impenetrable divide, love at first sight. Um, and in case you think that these divides in New York City or even elsewhere were just made up, um, I'm going to tell you that you didn't grow up in mid-20th century or late-20th century New York City multi-ethnic, multi-racial. Uh, it was a place where you were warned almost from birth that you should never cross such lines. Um, that your parents, even your entire family, might abandon you if you if you did. And true love is not necessarily an easy sell when the stakes are that high. And if you choose that love over your family, you might never uh, get those people back. Um, and I say this only because most movies and TV shows make light of such divides and generally the parents' hearts, you know, or the family's hearts are melted when they see their children so in love. But I, I have to say this was not the case 100 years ago or 60 years ago or even 30 years ago uh, for some communities, even in the U.S. and certainly not in many places around the world. Um, next, in that first version, we have the roof, uh, the roof of, of an apartment building. This is after the dance, and we have uh, the jets are getting together. Um, actually, I think this may be the sharks. I may be wrong there. With an open space. Uh, so think of that song up on the roof. Da, da, da. In the middle of town, I found a paradise that's trouble-free up on the roof. Okay, I've done enough singing <laughs> for this episode, right? But in a city, that roof space is so precious because you're always crowded. You're always with other people. And here they have like a private space. Um, so this roof almost acts like an empty stage. And, and both movies have a feeling of being plays in some ways rather than movies. Um, so this was before roof decks and before fancy apartment houses built lots of stuff on their roof. You, the roof was this open, private space. And likewise with the roof, we have fire escapes that play a big role in both movies. Um, these are the poor, perfect poor person equivalents for the, that balcony in Verona. Indeed, in some ways, even better because um, 
These fire escapes uh, create an intimate space for our lovers outside of apartments and yet shielded from the streets. And it's hard to watch these films again after seeing them recently um, because, because you know so well that these two gloriously happy, in love young main characters are just careening toward tragedy. And unlike most musicals, this is not a comedy or a light drama. This is music and especially dance that conveys tension and violence, um, as well as a story of love. We also have scenes under a highway. We have scenes in a parking garage and on the on the streets. And it's it's as if all these community, all um, of these poor people, all that they deserve is this concrete. The story ends, this first version ends, um, at the playground with Maria over Tony's body. He's been shot. Uh, the cops have arrived after the shooting. And we have both gangs standing reverent um, on either side of Tony, as if at a funeral. They're ashamed, uh, and they've realized the enormity of what's happened and the enormity of and uselessness of their hate. We have almost a religious procession as young men from both gangs uh, carry out Tony's body. Uh, one jet goes over and he, um, he puts a, a black scarf over Maria's head as if she's now a widow. Everyone joins the procession out of the playground and we're left alone with Maria in the same space where Tony had maybe... 24 hours earlier, I don't know what the timing is exactly, when he had practically skipped across um, happy with the discovery of his love. She embodies mourning. She passes what looks like an improbable receiving line of mourners as she walks out of the playground. And Doc, uh, the person whom Tony had worked for, who plays the conscience of the first version. He's replaced in the second version by someone else, and I'll explain that. But um, Doc, who runs the pharmacy, the, the candy store, um, a mainstay of, of 50s, 60s, 70s New York City, um, he's the conscience of the neighborhood. He's the one person who would encourage Tony. Uh, you can see his sense of failure and, and the hope is over. As we go to version two, now we have Steven Spielberg's version. Um, Doc is replaced by uh, the character played by Rita Marino in the second version, and I forget the name they give her, but she's, she's supposedly Doc's widow, and she runs this candy store pharmacy. So we have Spielberg, and it's and it's interesting to me. A little more coffee there. Spielberg is ne is not a native New Yorker, and he hasn't spent his career in the city. He's a filmmaker, you know. He's not someone who um, someone who spent his career on Broadway, for example. But clearly, he loved the original movie because his remake is an homage, respectful, even as it, it takes some very different turns in terms of um, the scene, places uh, where we see our characters and where uh, certain songs are performed, even as he changes those things, um, and even as the tone of the movie is, is quite different, it's definitely, um, you can see his love for the original in, in the remake. Um, so, in this movie, unlike the original, which was partly filmed on site before all of the buildings were destroyed, and before this neighborhood was destroyed, uh, we obviously don't have that in the remake. <laughs> so they do, they do film, uh, they do film those neighborhood scenes in other locations. Um... But what we do have in the in the remake is more of an effort to get a sense of this neighborhood as community, as vibrant, as full of people, as a place of belonging, even if the people who live there have little in the way of money or other wealth. 
This movie opens with black and white views from a couple of feet above rubble and a sign that says, and I quote, slum clearance, which was acceptable parlance in 1961. Uh, at least for then city planner extraordinaire, our J. Edgar Hoover equivalent, um, the one and only whom I did mention before, Robert Moses. Uh, we quickly see a sign that shows a gleaming future with the words Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts. Of course, we know that's going to replace um, some of this neighborhood. And we're about to see at what price and who pays that price for that uh, amazing arts complex and its public spaces that has attracted millions from around the world in the decades since it's been built. The second movie does more than nod at the complete destruction of this poor neighborhood. It focuses on that destruction. It forces us to get up close and personal with that destruction and, um, and the idea of what relocation might mean for the actual people who have grown up there or who have moved there and who cling to its streets. Before we see any people in the second version, we see rubble and wrecking ball. We see the mafia-type wannabes, the jets, stealing paint from a construction site. We see similar streets to the original movie with the ballet-like walking jets, but there's more color and there's more beauty in this second version's perspective than in the original movie. Spielberg's version uh, reminds me of Lin-Manuel Miranda's view of Washington Heights in, um, in the Heights. There, there's a similarity there. Uh, this is not a neighborhood in West Side Story that, that the movie thinks should be disappearing right? This is a neighborhood vibrant with stores and people walking and children uh, where, where Broadway and 68th Street, um, except obviously we're not at the real Broadway and 68th because it looks very different today, but, <laughs> but um, I have to say one thing they don't do is show Broadway as wide as it would have been in 1961. Um, you know, uh, but we are shown a regular street. Uh, we get to see petty theft and vandalism through dance. Obviously, the, the jets and the sharks, these are not... Um, these are not the good boys, you know, of the neighborhood. They're not angels. Um, they're, not, they're certainly not Boy Scouts. Um, and then we get to the playground, where we have a giant painting of a Puerto Rican flag. And that sets off the jets. Uh, we have uh, a fight, then flight ensues. We're under an elevated subway. And I will say that this is the one thing that really bothers me in this movie. Because there is no elevated subway. And there was not in 1961 an elevated subway in or near this neighborhood. So that's my one, like, really, you know my problem with it. But other than that, it's a great movie. Um, <laughs> so once the police show up, when the jar sh jets and sharks are fighting, we're in a fenced off lot instead of uh, in a playground as we were in the original. And that slum removal is front and center. It's not just alluded to. And the movie talks head on about how anyone who has made anything of themselves amongst the Irish, the Italians, and the Jews, they're not living in this neighborhood anymore. They have moved on. So by the time the second version of the movie comes out, the well-educated children and grandchildren of those previous residents may well be living there. Uh, it's, this is now a very big stroller neighborhood. It's a family neighborhood. It has been for many years. So. Um, it's, it's a neighborhood that's gone through a lot of changes, and maybe that is reflected. Those societal changes also are reflected in the second version. So what the police officer proclaims is coming, a shiny new neighborhood, he says, a shiny new neighborhood of rich people's apartments, is, it's decades away. As I said earlier, as the 50s give way to the 60s, 
what the city was attempting to do was keep the middle class in the city, right? You, they wanted to keep that tax base in the city as the suburbs were actively luring them away. It wants to keep not only its tax base, it wants to keep audiences for Broadway shows, it wants to keep its shoppers at department stores as these suburban malls are, being, are popping up right and left. On the other hand, for those without education, those, um, those middle-class jobs that the new residents of Lincoln Towers will have, those jo- kind of jobs are out of reach for the young men and women who are featured in West Side Story. And what this police officer does, really more um, in the second version, and, and he doesn't really do in the original, but what he really is, he's, he's kind of a narrator of the history of the neighborhood, the past, and, um, and its future. He makes plain to these ethnic white boys who are the Jets uh, that the turf of their neighborhood is soon going to disappear, and that if they continue their hijinks, they're going to soon have nothing except the prospect of time in prison. So let's go, um, we're going to go beyond the dance, of course, Tony and Maria meet each other, um, and the two groups, uh, they propose their rumble, their fight, right? And we have Tony singing the song Maria after he meets his love, a young Puerto Rican woman named Maria, who is the little sister of the head of the Sharks, the rival gang. Uh, The filming of Tony in the second version, as he walks across a playground behind apartment buildings, under laundry hung from windows, even as his feet make their way across a sidewalk puddle, it really is what it is like to see the real city, its ordinary places, as beautiful. Uh, Where the original of the 1961 version sees the city as old and dingy and becoming threatening, the remake revels in neighborhoods, um, and it revels in that ordinary beauty and the ethnic communities and regular people who go about their business. Likewise, the song America Here is sung not on a rooftop as it was in the original, um, but with the sharks and their part, you know, with the sharks and their partners who are alone and they're up on that roof, but on the street. Um, and it's on the street during a protest against Robert Moses and his plan for Lincoln Towers and Lincoln Center. The scene emphasizes that this is, it is a vibrant neighborhood. Um, A vibrant neighborhood with lots of businesses and people that is going to be destroyed. It's not a ghost town that's being cleared. So with traffic stopped in the middle of what I assume is supposed to be Broadway during this this big song and dance number, we have this open street with the dancers using the intersection um, and people from the neighborhood, many children joining joining the, the main characters as they sing and dance. And in the second version, we also go beyond the neighborhood, which the first version does not. Um, Tony and Maria have a real date in the second version. They take the subway from 72nd Street to the Cloisters. 72nd Street Station at Broadway between 70th and 72nd is a station that dates back to 1904. One of the original IRT, that's Interborough Rapid Transit, uh, stations when the subway was first built. And I will go on after I pour a little more coffee. Okay. Mmm. Taking a sip. All right. Um, so the IRT was one of three subway companies that was privately run before the city took over the subways and made it one system. Uh, the 72nd Street Station, and this is kind of funny, it's, you know, You'll see this with roads, you'll see this with uh, uh, public transportation networks, right? The 72nd Street Station has actually been overcrowded since its opening in 1904. And there have been decades of discussion about how to expand it because the lo- it's a local and an express stop. Um, and the station has very narrow platforms and pretty narrow staircases. 
it is a wonderful station to visit. Even, you know, try to avoid it at a crowded time. But you really see what some of these original subway stations looked like. Um, and it's a very convenient station uh, to reach. It's only one stop away from 42nd Street. I mean, I think it's less than a, maybe a three-minute ride from 42nd Street. I mean, it's really quick. Um, only one stop away. And even downtown Manhattan is maybe a 15-minute ride, maybe 20 minutes to Brooklyn Heights. I mean, it, it's, it's a real wonderful deal just going on an express train <laughs> but then I would grew up by an express station and my father kind of looked down on anyone who would make the choice to live near a local <laughs> okay so Tony and Maria we see them at the subway station and so we know they've traveled by subway to the cloisters where we join them um, and although only dating back to its construction beginning in 1933, the Cloisters opened to the public in 1938, the Cloisters was built as a medieval castle, but it feels like a monastery on a hill, way up beyond the commercial centers of Manhattan. And with the architecture, the artwork, the gardens, and the paths, the Cloisters is a place of quiet uh, and beauty for reflection. And from the New York Landmark Conservancy's page devoted to the Cloisters Museum and Gardens, and I quote, The Cloisters is located in the, in the midst of Fort Tyron Park in Upper Manhattan, overlooking the Hudson River. The museum opened to the public in 1938 and was designed by architect Charles Collins to resemble a French Romanesque abbey. John D. Rockefeller donated the area for the park, the building, and much of the collection. Designated a city landmark in 1974, the Cloisters Museum and Gardens is your chance to visit Europe without buying a plane ticket. End quote. Uh, the Cloisters is actually operated by and is part of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, or otherwise known as the Met. Uh, the second movie version gives Tony... Uh, more of a backstory or more time for his backstory and reason for changing his life and, and kind of a way in which Maria fits into that life. And the cloisters give him a space, almost a religious space, in which to confess uh, what, he, what is a grave sin of his to Maria and a space in which Tony and Maria can hold their secret marriage, vowing their commitment and love to each other. Uh, that's done in the neighborhood. I believe it's done in the dress shop in the original, um, where Maria works in the original. Um, by the time we go to the Rumble, it's it, this fight between the gangs. It's nighttime. We're not in the playground of the first movie. We're in a, rare, a warehouse, a facility for storing uh, street salt, which, which protects the streets um, when it snows. And I won't go into the whole environmental thing around uh, street salt. Then we go to a magical place, uh, a fancy New York City department store, kind of pre-1960s feel. Uh, it kind of feels like um, we're in the 1950s with its strict rules of conformity in terms of fashion. Um, and this is where we have the I Feel Pretty song. Um, in the second version, Maria and her friends are cleaning women at night in this in this department store. They're not the dress shop employees of the first movie. And once again, in the second movie, um, we're acknowledging that the people of the neighborhood, they don't only live, work, and exist in this neighborhood. They are a part of and they appreciate what the city has to offer and are partaking of that and and we here we have these these women and they're working in another area of the city in midtown and as i said it would have been really easy for them to get to midtown i'll add um we have these these folks have a a wonderful transit-oriented affordable lifestyle they're not living in fancy digs no some of this is really run-down housing but they're living very close to transit, to those subways, to those buses, and they probably have like a 15-minute commute, you know, if they're living by this express stop. So um, this is well before gentrification and before 
uh, before you had many of these neighborhoods, particularly on the west side, that went from either poor or middle class to wealthy or super wealthy. So as the story nears its end, and I will take a sip of coffee here, just like in Romeo and Juliet, we have these lovers who almost make it, but there's misinformation that dooms them. I won't go into why, but, you know, uh, it's a tragedy, not a rom-com. Tony is shot, and he dies in the middle of the street. Uh, he's covered by a, by a crying Maria, and then surrounded by the now regretful, suddenly matured uh, jets and sharks. Uh, Maria has lost her optimism and her innocence. These surrounding young men, former enemies, become the pallbearers together of Tony's body again. The construction equipment shines as if to remind us uh, that this night doesn't really matter to the wider world. This progress is coming. This urban renewal, as it's called, is coming. But that what's happened on this street uh, to Tony and among these young men matters greatly to the people on this block. And I will say this, if you can get through either version without crying at the end, well, I gotta tell you, <laughs> you're a different person than me because these are tear jerkers. Um, and whether it's the tribalism of the Hatfields and McCoys, the Muslims and the Hindus, the Palestinians and the Israelis, whoever, West Side Story answers such blood-based, genetics-based, violent tribalism really with a reverence for Gandhi's statement that an eye for an eye only ends up making the whole world blind. Uh, maybe that because this movie was written about and by members of groups who had all at one time or another been treated as lesser Americans, it doesn't have tolerance, uh, this story for capitalism and wealth. It, it also has less respect for strict customs, for strict tribalism of whatever ethnic community. It has more of an, a humanist perspective. It asks that question, why can't we all just live together and respect one another as human beings? Um, Romeo and Juliet has been told uh, against many different backgrounds, uh, many different times. Um, but I like West Side Story for its respect for these characters, um, both good and bad, poor and striving, and uh, some really not making it. And in America, and in a city that in 1961 hardly acknowledges them. And I love the beauty found in the streetscapes and in the playgrounds, perhaps because I grew up in a neighborhood in Brooklyn not completely different. Um, and with kids, many of whom were similar to, uh, to the young people we see in, in both versions of, of West Side Story. So thank you so much for listening today. I have been your host, Cheryl Gross Glazer from us at Altered Mobility to you. It's been a pleasure. I hope that we've either entertained you or put you to sleep if you have insomnia or educated you in some way or all of the above. Uh, contribute your thoughts on uh, social media and I will talk to you again in two weeks. It's it's been great, and now I will finish most of my coffee because I really didn't sip that much. Okay, bye-bye. Oh, <laughs>
Oh!